Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Yes OBS. Now, Paul, it's been brought to my attention recently that we never really introduce who we are or what the podcast is about. We just kind of, yeah. we launch straight into things. We, we prepare to lurk in the shadows of anonymity. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone, anyone who's new who's listening to the podcast, just a very quick recap of what Yes OBS is. We basically, we try and tell each other different facts and different mm. lies. We try to guess who's lying, who's telling the truth. We get points. There's some sort of reward system in there. Yeah. You'll pick it up as you go along. You tend to do better than me. You're you're more successful than me, even though... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's just life in general, though, Paul. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, my name is Anthony Evanson, also known as VoiceOver Tony on the social medias. And with me is my very good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Yes. Uh, (laughs) You won't know who I am, but you might know uh, my older ego, Haggard Hawks. Yes, so he is the master of Haggard Hawks, the Twitter account. So, Paul, what sort of facts have you got for me today? What sort um, of general areas are you hitting? I've got some history, which I know is kind of your kind of ballpark. I've got a little bit of sort of, yeah, I suppose you could say it was literature, but it's not really literature, which I know is more sort of my ballpark. But, mm. um, yeah, I've got a couple. Now, you say history is my ballpark, mm. but I historically do quite bad on history facts. <sighs> That's a terrible joke. It is. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've done okay. You, you've come up with some very good facts about history. Or if they're fake, because you're so knowledgeable in history, you dress them up very well. I think I'm on a 50-50 hit rate with them anyway. But a nice segue into my first fact okay. is I'm kind of going with a bit of history. Okay. But it's a bit of uh, modern history. We're going back to the First World War. And I want to right. give you some facts about the World War One tank. Okay. But that's not the main yes or BS fact on this one. Right. We're going, we're going to slowly lead up to it, like a, a beautiful build-up to the, the main course. Right, okay. Fact. Right, I'm braced. So, what do you know about the World War One tank? Just kind I, of just kind of gauge where your knowledge is at on it anyway. I know that the tank was pretty much invented for World War One. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um... That's kind of pretty much all that I know. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I, like, yeah, it's not something I've ever looked up. Right. Well, I'll give you a bit of background okay. to the first tank uh, developed by the British, uh, first of all. Uh, yes, I knew it was a sort of allied thing. And the very first kind of prototype of the tank was built in 1915. Now, mm-hmm. you might be able to relate to the name that they called this tank. Mm-hmm. It, it was called Little Willie. <sighs> Have you built this entire fact just around making that joke? Who knows how I came across this fact. Right. So the company that was commissioned to make this very first prototype was William Foster and Company of Lincoln. And they were an agricultural machinery company, which Mm. was the closest thing that the army had to who makes big machines. Oh, right. So they made like combine harvesters. Yeah, those sort of things. So big tractors. So they thought that's the natural step if we're doing this secret sort of project. We'll ask them to give them this design for a tracked vehicle. vehicle. Right. And... It was named after William Foster, so the person. Ah, oh, right. So, okay. Therefore, Little Willie. But basically, that very first prototype, it was fairly useless. It was basically just one grey box with some tracks. Right. And kind of. So those flat fronts and sides wouldn't have done much to deflect bullets or right. Or that okay. Sort of thing. So, but it was a good precursor to the year after when the first uh, Mark One tank was built. Right. Okay. Now a bit of background on kind of what life was like in one of these tanks. I can imagine it was pretty cramped. Uh, it, it's more roomy than you'd think. They, oh, really? You could get eight men in one of these tanks. Eight men? Yeah, these were massive. That's like a mobile doctor's waiting room. That's ridiculous. Eight men? Yeah, eight men. It's You needed at least two to drive it. 
you needed like the front driver, the commander, and then there was a second guy at the back who operated a second gearbox, and he also operated the machine guns at the back as well. Wow, multitasking. That's cool to say. And it could, because the engine was just like slap bang in the middle of the tank, right next to the men, it could get up to temperatures of about 50 degrees Celsius. What? Which is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's basically an absolute nightmare working in one of these things. Good grief. And they were often prone to break down, as you might have heard, um, mm. when they were first used at the Battle of the Somme. Mm-hmm. There were 49 tanks deployed, only nine made it to the enemy lines, and only three were recovered back to the British lines at the wow. end. So it wasn't a great, wasn't yeah, a great run. That's and that will have been expensive. Exactly, because <laughs> <laughs> that's the first. You, you could be a field marshal in the first world war. <laughs> we'll easily replace those crews, no doubt. <laughs> but those tanks, gosh darn it! So their top speed was actually. How, would you guess how fast now, the first tank would go? See, I have it in my head that actually tanks go probably a lot quicker than you think they would. Mm. But I'd imagine maybe the. F- first ones probably didn't go very quick mm. it's either going to be something ludicrous like they went at because they were so light or something they went at like 65 miles an hour <laughs> or, <What>? or... <laughs> and the war was over within five minutes as the tanks powered to berlin or it's going to be something ludicrous and they never kind of went over like walking pace or something it's the second it's one. the latter of those was... two. yeah that's probably what i would have put my money on 3.7 miles an hour. Are you joking? They, That's ridiculous. They were about 29 tons. So what? They were a beast to shift. They kind of, I think the initial assumption was like the shock value of seeing the first tanks was mm. supposed to kind of terrify yeah. the Germans. But yeah, of course it will have done. Yeah. And actually they were quite good at deflecting small arms fire. So rifles, pistols, machine guns. Oh, would have done nothing. Sometimes the bullets would impact the tank and bits of shrapnel would fly off in the middle of the from inside the tank. Oh, wow. So it w- the bullet wouldn't get through, mm. but it would cause such force. It would cause little tiny bits of shrapnel mm. to fly around the tank. Good grief. And if a shell struck nearby, that might often blast the rivets out, which caused like a big fat bolt to come flying at some of the crew. Ooh. And obviously if it was hit directly by a shell, that was just game over. Yeah, of course. So the easy thing for the Germans, with them being slow moving, they could easily zero in artillery. Oh, and say, right. right. It's moving very slowly towards me, even slower than the soldiers. <laughs> Please aim at this pit of ground. Right. But this is the main the main course of this fact. Okay. <laughs> I, so we still haven't got to your fact. We haven't got to the fact. This all is, of this has been true. All of this has been true at right, this okay. point. Because I couldn't do a disservice to tanks. But what you might not know about the first British tanks is that each one had a basket of pigeons inside. And... Uh-huh. Because... Well, the radio had been developed, it, but you needed quite large antenna for it. So the right. Navy was starting to use wireless, like the Marconi wireless, okay. to send messages. But tanks, they obviously couldn't have their own portable radio in there. Yeah. There wasn't enough space for one. So how do you get a message from the tank back to base? Right. You've got a basket of pigeons. The tank commander would write the message on. Mm-hmm. And there was a tiny hole in the back of the tank. They'd pop the pigeon through. Whoosh. It would go back to the <laughs> HQ. Right. And it would say, please... The Germans are weak at this section. Please start shelling this right, area. Right, okay. And okay. they would relay messages with pigeons. So is, is this your fact? This is, this is my the, central fact. So the, the tanks had like homing pigeons? Yeah, like... little homing pigeons for messages. Okay. And I just kind of want to give a shout out to the unsung heroes of the First World War, the pigeons. Mm-hmm. Um, about 100,000 pigeons served with the British Army. Mm-hmm. 
that actually that sounds quite grand. You picture them in uniforms. Yeah, I was going to say helmets. that. I don't think they exactly opted to serve in the British <laughs> yeah, Army. They, they were they were drafted. Yeah, but they were brave little souls. Saved countless lives with the mm. messages they managed to get through because they could fly about a mile a minute. Whereas if you send a messenger boy back, he's obviously quite an open target to get shot, mm-hmm. and he might not make it back in time. But some pigeons they would fly even once they'd been shot themselves as well. They they their instinct oh, wow. to get back to their home base was so strong. Yeah, and here's another fun fact: there's even a record at the Battle of the Marne which was north of Paris. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where the Germans nearly broke through and took Paris, but the French defended it. Right. There's records of them taking their own pigeon coops in the assault, the French. So they had these, obviously the main assault fronts with the rifles, and then they yeah. had the guys carrying boxes of pigeons behind them as oh, well. Oh, wow. So once they got to the trenches, they'd be able to send send messages back. Wow. Good grief. And it's because they're so useful, pigeons. Yeah. That is why they put them in tanks. Obviously, very uncomfortable pigeons at 50 degrees. I was going to say, yeah, in 50 degree heat. You could say they could be flapping. Oh, dear me. Really, really flapping in there. So, so, Paul, there you go. Right, What do you think of those facts? This is interesting. Mm. Now, this is annoying because... It sounds completely convincing, yeah. How would you send a message from a tank back to headquarters or wherever it was Mm. being sent to? Yes, you couldn't have put radios on there. I do know that they use a lot of pigeons during the First World War. I have heard Mm -hmm. that before. Did they not give, like, bravery medals to some pigeons? They did, I think. Is it the Dickon Medal It is the Dickon Medal. I think there was about between 10 and 15 given to pigeons. To pigeons, yeah. And dogs and stuff got them as well. But I remember pigeons, Mm. I think, have won these before. So, yeah, this all sounds very plausible. But what you could have done is... Take pigeons were in the First World War as a fact and tanks were invented in the First World War as a tank and just sort of like slam them together in your brain and come out with this come out with this idea that there's a basket of pigeons in every tank. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many pigeons were in the basket. Right. But they they had pigeons in the tank. Okay. Now you said relaying message messages. Well, I say relaying messages as in just they would in sending messages. That's, right. That's so people back that. at HQ couldn't send a message back to the tank using no, a pigeon. No, because it would be incredibly difficult for the pigeon to get back to that yeah. tiny hole it was pushed out of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it was an exceptionally skilled pigeon <laughs> in the middle of a battle. Yeah, true. It swoops in, like nails that hole. Because <laughs> it must I can't wait to get back into that tank, it would think to itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. Well, I know that there were sort of carrier pigeons. Yeah, I'm coming down on the side of this being true. I've never, ever heard this before. Mm. But then I don't particularly know about history or, or military history, especially. It just sounds like, yes, you would have had to get a message, presumably from the tank back to wherever. And I can't honestly think that there would have been any other way of sending it unless maybe flashing a light and doing like more cold or something <laughs> I don't know but that poor guy at the back who's yeah. changing the gears and flashing lights he's <laughs> firing the machine gun That's, yeah it's so it, it makes perfect sense that that you would have pigeons on board but then again it doesn't because it's 50 degree heat and I don't think you could keep birds pigeons survive everywhere Paul they're yeah, well, very yeah. rugged birds that is true 50 degrees mm. I mean god they could be broiled that's the thing if the battle goes on long enough there's your lunch um okay pigeons in tanks i've never heard this before i think i might get this wrong but i'm gonna say that this is true is that your final answer yeah i'm gonna say that (laughs) pigeons were pushed out of holes in the backs of tanks in the middle of the trenches (laughs) 
Would you like to rethink the answer? Or now I've said it, yes, yes, I probably would. But no, I'm going to stick with my guns. No pun intended. And uh, yeah, I think that this was true. This fact mm-hmm. is actually true. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh and wow! So a couple of bonus facts about pigeons: they also used to attach tiny cameras on a harness to them, and they would fly over and take aerial pictures. Really? This was in like the early days of the walk because aircraft obviously got a lot better. Yeah. So it was a lot easier to send somebody else in an mm. airplane up there to do it by the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, early days, pigeons would get sent up with little... Pigeons with cameras. If you Google this picture, it's it's adorable. This little pigeon with a little camera, little camera harness on oh, it. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, they, which is why pigeons were always targeted. They were always shot. Yeah. Wow. Pigeons with cameras. So how did they get the, get it to take a photo? Um, I think it was like a continuous like running camera. Oh right, it was okay. like a like a kind of squashed version of the, the film camera. So right. they would just like start it recording, and it right. would just record for as long as right. It could. Right, okay. So it's not like the pigeons got like a little tree of gunpowder, and no. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not like stopping there taking selfies in midair. Yeah, he's got like the little velvet hood over his head, <laughs> and <laughs> his box brownie. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so there's pigeons on board the tanks. Yeah, good grief, a little basket of them, and. Blame the British Tank Museum if that fact's wrong, because that's, that's, that's where I got this one from. Wow. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a great fact. Just a final bonus fact to finish on. Apparently, when the Germans invaded Belgium, they commandeered up to a million pigeons. And it was kind of both sides would go at great lengths to try and kill the other's pigeons. Mm-hmm. I think there's even record of one point where pigeons were brought, captured enemy pigeons were brought back. And paraded on the home front as a kind of like war prize. Wow. So these poor pigeons just standing there, not knowing what's going Good on. Good grief. Hey, pigeons have had a hard time. They have. And then, I mean, right in the middle of it all, Dick Dastardly turns up. Oh, God. <laughs> you picked the most ancient, obscure Hanna-Barbera cartoon you could think of there. Catch the Pigeon was a great cartoon. Well, all two of our seven listeners who know what that is. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they're applauding you now. Paul. Yeah, my jokes get more and more obscure the longer this podcast goes on. But on that note, let's say we fly on to the next facts. <sighs> right, that was a good fact to start us off. Okay, so hopefully you like this fact as well. Yeah, this is the one that's kind of halfway between literature and history. So mm. in other words, we're just talking about... Um, we're not talking about books, but we're talking about an author. Mm, uh, we're talking about... Alexandre Dumas, mm. Pei, as in father, um, who wrote Three Musketeers and Count of Monte Cristo and um, Man in the Iron Mask and mm. all that sort of stuff. Do you know anything about him? Very little. You know I'm very weak on authors. Yeah. Um, well, he, um, he was born in 1802, died in 1870, as well as being a sort of very famous author. He's very prolific. He wrote, I think all of his books together have something like 100,000 pages of um, of prose. So mm. um, I, I don't think I'm I'm exactly rivaling him yet. Take three zeros off that, I get, <laughs> you might guess, closer to the pages you've written. Yeah, true enough. Um, yeah, but as well as writing all that, he was a critic and an essayist and a journalist and a um, playwright and all sorts. So he was uh, very, very prolific. But we're not kind of talking about him when he was an author. We're talking about an event that took place quite early on in his life when he was 23. He was in 1825. Basically, he'd been out for some food with some friends in Paris mm-hmm. and then they'd gone to a bar and they were drinking and da 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 And there happened to be a soldier in this bar who was playing billiards and he caught sight of Alexandre Dumas in the, in the bar and Dumas was wearing 
big ill-fitting boots and he always looked a bit sort of odd and sort of dumpy and little glasses and he had a long cloak on so he looked a bit ridiculous mm -hmm. so this soldier basically took the mickey out of him mm -hmm. and Duma didn't like this uh, so he challenged him to a duel sorry go on it's like yeah. it's always like the 1800s <laughs> yeah. what's, what's wrong with you yeah Anything goes in the 1800s. So, yeah, so they had a duel and the soldier accepted and the date was set. Duma was actually quite a good shot. Um, so he started practicing with pistols and all the rest of it. Unfortunately, they decided that the duel would be uh, fought with swords after he'd spent a couple of days practicing with pistols. So mm. all of that practice went down the drain. As it happened, he was actually quite a good fencer. So mm. the sword fight wasn't too big a deal. So it was arranged. He turned up at the allotted time. Uh, his opponent, the first time they did this, didn't turn up. He'd actually slept in. <laughs> uh, so the duel initially didn't take place. So a different date was organized and eventually they did meet up. It was at a quarry um, at the top of Paris uh, near Montmartre. So this is where they meet up. They, they both arrive, they've got their swords and um, they're getting ready for the duel. And the soldier demands that Dumas take his jacket off, like his overcoat, and he takes his vest. He had a sort of little vest jacket on underneath. Mm -hmm. So Dumas starts taking off all of these layers because obviously if you're going to have a sword fight, if a sword's going to get through about five layers of clothing, then you're at a slight unfair advantage to someone who's just there in a soldier's tunic or something. <laughs> so Dumas... So how thick was this coat? <laughs> well, it, it was in window. It was just snowing, so he was probably kind of quite trusted up. Mm -hmm. uh, so Dumas takes all of these jackets off. And in the midst of all this, he took his suspenders off and his trousers <laughs> fell down. <laughs> uh, so he very embarrassingly pulls his trousers back up. <laughs> all of the people who work in the quarry are all laughing at him. The, the opponents, Oh, the workers are still there. Oh, they're all this watching is, this. This, oh, is right. all, this is all going on. Um, his opponent laughs at him, his second, who's there to hand him his weapon and all the rest of it. He laughs at him. So Dumas kind of a bit humiliated. Gets his suspenders and sort of because his belt buckle had broken. This is why his trousers were down. He's a mess. Yeah, he is. He gets his suspenders and <clears throat> sort of ties them round his waist to keep his trousers up. So basically, he's now going into a <laughs> duel, having mooned everybody, and now with his sort of ramshackle trousers pulled up around his waist. But he won the duel. Really? Uh, they started the fight. Because all of this had happened, Dumar had got his sword and put it into the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and the ground was frozen, so the tip of the blade of the sword had gone absolutely ice cold. Mm. They then started the fight. Dumar, as, as I say, was a very good fencer. Mm. Um, he'd struck the, the soldier in the top of his arm in his shoulder. And although the cut wasn't too bad, both, both of them survived the fight, I'm mm. very happy to say. The blade was so cold that the soldier sort of staggered back. He was so sort of shocked by the temperature of the blade of his sword and instantly said, I'm out. I, the, I'm, I'm not having any of this. Like it, it had so sort of unnerved him that he'd been struck and that it had felt so strange that uh, instantly laid his sword down. The matter was done and they went home. I'm starting to question his professional soldier ability. <laughs> oh, that's a bit chilly. That's a bit cold. I surrender. <laughs> yeah. So this is my story that uh, the author of The Three Musketeers had a duel where his trousers fell down, but he still managed to win the fight. So you said this was in the 1820s. Yeah, this was 1825. So, so Dumas was 23. So was this soldier just like off? Judy, I presume. He I presume so, yeah. He, anywhere. he was just chilling out in... Yeah, in Paris, yeah. Mm. I'm presuming he was off duty because he was in a bar playing billiards. And then had time to go and sleep in before it <laughs> Yeah. I'm thinking the discipline wasn't that great at the time <laughs> in the French army there. Probably not, no. Right, so he was insulted for wearing stupid clothes. Mm-hmm. 
Is this not just something happened to you last weekend or something? Paul? <laughs> yeah, I was in the pub. Someone someone took the piss. Chaps to do a duel. You lost trainers. your suspenders. Yeah, yeah. Accidentally mooned everyone. Yeah, you've seen through it. It actually all happened to me. Right. I can't quite put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but something just seems fishy about this. Okay. Where did uh, Dumas? Where did he learn defence? Like, oh, what was, what was his background anyway? Like. Oh, that I don't know. No, I, d- I don't know about that. I'm I'm not particularly up on any Dumas. I've never read any of his books, actually, which is a bit of a shame, considering how famous he is. Uh, no, I, d- I don't know what his background was in. But um, right. probably 19th century, you're going to you kind of cover all the bases of sort of hunting, shooting and fishing and all that sort of stuff. Could be. Unless he was like a townsperson, you might not have mm, ever yeah, done true. that sort of thing. Right. So I can't really interrogate down that avenue. Mm-hmm. So why did they choose the quarry as well? And I, when the people were at work, you could just, could you just do this? I, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing that it was probably quite an isolated spot on the outskirts of the city because mm. I'm not sure whether dueling was illegal then. I know that it was outlawed in America later in the 19th century, I mm. think, if not early 20th century. Because did the, did Abraham Lincoln not fight a duel at some point? Oh, did he? I didn't know that one. That's I, like a bonus fact. If yeah, I, I can remember reading something about sort of famous people who'd fought a duel, and I'm sure Lincoln was on there. Um I'm guessing it was just at the quarry because it was outside of the city centre. It was a big open space. Uh, they can't harm anyone but else. the sword being so cold, you think you'd be more shocked at the fact that you were stabbed in the arm rather than... Yeah. Because a sword would be quite cold anyway. Just, I, I don't know. I've never, I don't think I've ever picked up a sword. <laughs> I, think we, I think we need some more field tests. Next, <laughs> next time on Yes or Yes, we're going to go out the field <laughs> test episode. We'll take the mics out into a field and just and stab each other for a bit. Yeah, is, we'll, that, is that cold? We'll Paul? report back. <laughs> right. There's like a ring of feasibility to this, it mm-hmm. sounds. But, you know, I'm thinking you've just cobbled this together, though. Okay. You've picked an author. Well, I'll say pick an author that I don't know much about, which is basically any author. Yeah, you're including that. me on that list as well. <laughs> 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 I've actually read your books, Paul. Have yeah. you? Yeah, support. Oh, wow. thing. It's just other books I don't read. Leave me an Amazon review then. <laughs> <laughs> or were you the one that left me two stars? <laughs> under a pseudonym. <laughs> right. I think I'm just going to have to say there's... I can't quite put my finger on it, but mm-hmm. I'm going to say this is BS. It just feels off. Okay. That's my final answer. Final answer. Yep. That story? Mm-hmm. It's completely true. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dumas fought a duel and his trousers fell down. God, how embarrassing for the poor man. I know, yeah. I feel a bit sorry for him. But um, yeah, it was in his formative years. So I think he got over it. I just love the fact that you could just duel people back in the day. I know, it's yeah. Like... This is the thing. I kind of wish that I'd looked at whether it was legal or not. I'm guessing mm. that it probably still was for them to sort of automatically decide that they were going to have a duel. <laughs> I'd like to think that. Our, like yes or BS inspires people to research because they think wow <laughs> yeah. look at the shocking lack of knowledge those two have <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe maybe we should do our own research yeah that, true so that could be the way people go yeah but Re- I, report back <laughs> that's an interesting one though yeah so it's 2-0 to you now, Paul. Oh, this is, I, I, I feel a, a clean sweep coming on. I'm, I think I'm too relaxed today. I'm usually more on edge because I'm, I'm fired up. That nervous energy's these. gone. It's gone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, I've, I've lost my competitive edge. <laughs> it's ever since the Christmas special. You just, <laughs> you've given up with this game. <laughs> hey, I'm sure I've won like at least two of these no, I think, yeah, since yeah. the Christmas special. Yeah, I'm true this. enough. I still, I'm still in therapy for that. <laughs> Okay, well done, Paul. 
So two nil to you on a nice fact. Mm. Uh, literature and history combined, kind of hitting me with a double a left and a right. A double whammy, yeah. Mm. So I'm gonna try and pull this back with my own bit of history. Okay. We're gonna talk. It's kind of we're gonna to touch around the history of paper money, banks, oh. lending, that sort of thing. Okay. Bit of financial history for you today. So I'm right. kind of I'm finally leaving the Romans. Yeah. As much as I use them as a crutch. <laughs> yeah. Every episode. Oh, it's the Romans again. <laughs> so I've gone to ancient China this time. Okay. Um, so as you might know, the Chinese invented the concept of paper money. I did know that. I was going to say that, yeah. In about the AD 600s in the Tang Dynasty, mm-hmm. when paper bills first started to be used. It basically came from merchants and traders who became very successful, mm-hmm. didn't want to carry around hundreds or possibly thousands of copper copper coins. Oh, right. Okay. Because copper was the primary currency at the time in China. Right. Okay. It's so, a bit like going to the pub with you. <laughs> hey, I buy my rounds fair and square. Yeah, with copper. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago, Paul. I don't do that anymore. I was very poor at the time. <laughs> so yeah, copper was a primary currency, mm. as was for me in my student days. <laughs> and so instead of merchants wanting to carry around hundreds of coins, they would instead give those coins to a trusted third party. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, it wasn't a bank as such. Mm. It was just a, a trusted person in a town or village who had the ability to store money. Right. So they would guard it for a small fee. Yeah. In exchange, the merchants would write out these promissory notes. Ah, right. And say, this is good. If you go to this bloke over there Mm. with this piece of paper, he will give you the coins that I have promised you. Oh, right. That's where paper money comes from. Yeah, that's where paper money comes from. It was just easier than carrying around hundreds of coins at once. That's interesting. You know, this is one of these things that, like, you never ever think about. Mm. And and then when someone explains it, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) It's so much easier, right? Uh, It it started off because a lot of the successful merchants were doing quite big transactions. Right. So maybe they were buying grain in mass bulk and it cost them thousands of coins. I don't know what the exchange rate was, Mm. to be honest, but Mm. thousands of coins. Instead Mm. of that, they would hand over these notes and they would go and redeem them. Because coins were originally like... It was the value of the metal that was used to make them, wasn't it? Exactly. So that makes sense. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So it's odd that paper money even was a thing. Exactly. But, but no, it, was, that makes it sense was just that... too much of a hassle. To yeah. Oh, right. So it kind of around the 600s to 900s, it started to take off. Mm-hmm. And then by the year 960 AD, under the Song Dynasty, there right. was a shortage of copper. So the authorities decided, right, let's just start printing paper money. Right. And you might not be able to exchange this for metal, but you can exchange this for other things. Right. Maybe a tax relief from the government. Right. That sort of thing. So paper money wasn't just about, here's paper, exchange for coins. It was about, you could exchange for other things as well. Right. Which I think we should bring back. That's quite a neat idea, I think. Yeah, you could get like, yeah, exchange something for like... 10 free parking tickets. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're exempt from 10 free parking yeah. tickets with this with this card. I keep bringing up parking tickets because I got absolutely stung the other day and it's really annoying. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's because you're such an incompetent motorist. The thing is as well, I've completely forgot about it so I had to pay the like full price of it. Oh, hey, pay your parking tickets, people. <laughs> Oh, if only there was some sort of system <laughs> yeah. where you could exchange paper for free parking tickets. <sighs> anyway. Right, so there's a bit of background on where paper money's come from, mm. its origins. So the fact I'm going to talk about today mm-hmm. is the city of Henglong, which was in okay. northern China. Right. It doesn't exist anymore as a modern city. Right. It was quite out of the way in the sticks in northern China. And what these guys were doing, because they were so far from sources of copper, so the nearest place was about three weeks away in travel. It was a city called um, Bianjing. 
mm-hmm. which is now modern day Kaifeng in China. Right. Now, I have Three no, weeks away. Yeah. Good they good. were, it was very, it was on kind of the frontiers on the northern territories. Right. So basically, over a period of time, they'd gradually just switched over to entirely paper money. Right. And instead of people storing coins, people would store their excess paper money with these, right. with this kind of proto-bank that right. the government was kind of running. Okay. So it was the world's first cashless economy, well, coinless economy. If right. You will. But this turned out to be a disaster for them because in 1034, the Yellow River burst. Some of the facines burst on the Yellow River. Mm-hmm. Now, the facine is like um, a large bundle of brushwood that's used to divert different parts right. of the river. So this burst caused a massive flood right across northern China. Right. And poor Heng Long, they got hit the worst with the flood. Right. They saw the proto-bank flooded completely where everyone's storing their paper money. Oh, right. What happens to paper when it gets wet? Yeah. It just turned to mush. So not only that, it was the the records kept of who has what. So this person has 100 coppers, this person has 50 coppers. Oh, good. So they lost all the records, lost all the cash. Complete disaster. So everyone's lost everything, but you can't just have an economy on nothing. Yeah. So what the government decided to do was starting from scratch here, people, mm-hmm. and they decided to issue a very early version of what we might see as a credit card. Right. So they said, right, we don't know who's got what. The only fair way to do this, we're going to give you some government relief. Everyone starts off with uh, one hundred coppers. Right. So they would hand out this card, and on that there were 50 stamps that represented one copper, uh, six stamps that represented five coppers, and right. two stamps that represented ten coppers. Okay. This is a very involved system yeah. that they decided to put up. Okay. The theory was um, each head of the household had one of these copper cards. Right. These credit cards, if you will. And they had their own unique family stamp to go with it. Right. This is so complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. <laughs> so say, for example, I wanted to go and buy a chicken for one copper. Uh-huh. I would go to the merchant. The merchant would scratch off one of the ones, mm-hmm. and I would stamp his card on the back of his card with my family stamp on a one. Right. Say we'd exchanged it. So the thinking was, after a few months or years, when paper money was printed again, you mm-hmm. could take the cards to the government, and they would swap it back for that paper money. Right, okay. A very convoluted and complicated system. Yeah. It obviously didn't catch on. No, I was going to say. But it was the world's first proto-credit card, and that's... Is my ancient China fact. Oh, that is a good fact. Mm. Because, yeah, the fact that the Chinese invented paper money is quite well known. The fact that they invented, essentially invented credit cards mm. is very interesting. I like that. You could also have made it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So, by this time, coins are kind of on the way out in China. This place is so remote that they've completely given up on them anyway. Mm. Um, they've gone completely paper money. Well, I think in the rest of China, the coins weren't on the way out. They were used concurrently. Right. It's right. actually surprisingly similar to how we use notes and coins today. Yeah. They're still, they they just go hand in hand, really. Right. But this place was so remote that a that coin it economy... Wasn't, it wasn't worth wasn't them. Right. I'm not going to travel down there three weeks just to exchange it and then carry back yeah. 500 coppers to pay Joe Bloggs. Right. Okay. Okay. So they'd gone completely paper money based and... Paper money was destroyed in the flood... So right. the government came up with these kind of loyalty credit card Okay. System. The system makes sense. What I'm kind of finding a bit odd is that everyone was just given the same amount of money. 
Well, they didn't know the fairer way to do it because you could have some merchants say, well, I, I'm, I owned 10,000 coppers. Mm. How, how dare you? And then some peasants said, oh, I've only got one copper. But yeah. they thought, right. The way the government saw it, it was like, right, it's kind of like act of God. Your wealth's been destroyed. Right. This is government aid. So you're right. all getting the same regardless of what you used to have. Right. Okay. And I suppose as well, if there's been that widespread a disaster, it's not mm. sort of... That it's very easy to kind of impose how we would react to it now on just a perfectly normal day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> on like <laughs> exactly. how it's people like, would be thinking. There's in a lot that of context. destruction. Apparently, it, it wrecked half the economy of northern China. This flood, it, was, it was massive. Henglong okay. was one of the worst hit areas. I've never heard of Henglong, but it was completely obliterated, pretty much, and has now been abandoned. I don't know if it was obliterated after the flood, but right. since then it was abandoned. It's right. not. It's not a city in modern China. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that's the only thing that kind of strikes me as being a bit odd is that everyone, regardless of their circumstances, would then be given the same amount of money. But again, it's kind of, it does make sense because there would be no other way of doing it. Mm. Okay. Uh, See, now you could have made this up, but it's so convoluted. And the thing of the ones, fives and tens Mm. and different families being given different stamps (laughs) and things, that... If if you have made this up, that is a very, very clever thing to come up with on the fly. Are you saying I'm not smart enough? You said that, not me, but it's maybe what I'm thinking. <laughs> no, um, that is, yeah, I can imagine that that would be feasible. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to think that this wouldn't be true, uh, that this wouldn't be a lie, rather. Mm. You ready for a final guess? Yeah, I think this is true. Yeah, I, the Chinese invented paper money and in a convoluted way they invented credit cards the credit card fact uh, is completely made up by me oh no <laughs> <laughs> the pay the money stuff that was completely true yeah um also true was the great flood of the yellow river yeah of course yeah which happened in 1034 heng long was devastated by the flood but they didn't have this but it's a money system. Credit card thing. Oh. I don't I don't actually know where Henglong was. It's just somewhere <laughs> in northern China, which was badly damaged by this flood. So I don't know if it was three weeks walk away from Kaifeng. Oh, That's God. just another city in China. Oh, you have absolutely <laughs> rinsed us. <laughs> Wow, that is a... Br- yeah, I mean, I, I'll lose the point on that. That's that's awesome. Well maybe, done. Maybe they should put me in charge of the government. I know. I'll, I'll get the, I'll get this little system going. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I've been absolutely played there. Well done. That is oh, such a good story, much. even um, though it's complete BS. Copper was the primary source of currency for the Chinese. <sighs> Interesting kind of side fact on that. Uh, silver came into prominence after uh, the Spanish started to take over what is now Argentina. And that's yeah. how the Spanish made a lot of money by selling silver to the Chinese. Ah, well, kind of... yeah. Argentina means land of silver. Exactly. And it, it skyrocketed the Spanish and European economy. Ah, uh, right. Okay. So China, by kind of two steps of separation, really boosted 15 and 1600s Europe by extension. Until then, it was mostly copper they used to use. There you go. Now. Oh, wow. Back up fact for you. Good grief. Right, I think I'm going off to go and invent these cards. Yeah. And will you get ready for your next fact? <sighs> that was such a good fact. Thank you, Paul. I Thank hope you. I can uh, get you with this one now. Um, th- there's one subject that keeps coming up that we're not particularly great with. Oh, God, with. if this is science again. Well, <laughs> every, you know, everyone loves it when we try to explain science. <laughs> this isn't exactly science. This is kind of... It's if if I put it on the blog, it would be under the science heading, but it's not straight up science. It's kind of a mixture of science and 
history and a bit of politics, maybe. Okay. Okay. So it's a bit better than just yeah our terrible straight science yeah. ones. Okay. I'm going to talk to you about what's officially called the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Excellent. So basically just space treaty, what you can yeah. and can't do. Yeah, it's known as the Outer Space Treaty. Oh, excellent. Okay. Like the sound of this already. Um, and this is the treaty that prevents any country in the world mm-hmm. from putting a weapon on the moon. <laughs> Okay. This was drawn up in 1966 by um, a combination of um, American and Soviet governments. It was signed the next year, January the next year, by the US, Russia and the UK. We were Mm -hmm. one of the first signatories of it. It was negotiated by a separate UN department that was uh, sort of specialising in kind of what might happen in the middle of the sort of... It's kind of, what, 20 years after the Second World War? Mm. Yes, it's the sort of space race kind of time, but it's also kind of Cold War mm. era. Um, so it's kind of like, if all of this kind of became one thing, how da- how dangerous could the moon become? <laughs> so, yeah, this special sort of UN de- department was set up called the Legal Subcommittee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Mm. So up to now, this is all true. The, oh, right. the question okay. is... Are the terms of the treaty this? I was going to say, I thought the treaty seemed very familiar. I thought yeah. that... Uh, was, the I Outer thought... Space Treaty is a thing. Mm. But the question is whether it does prevent people from putting weapons on the moon. Right. This okay. Is, so this, these are your lies coming yeah, up. <laughs> so these are the terms of the treaty. That no arms or other weapons of mass destruction be placed on the moon mm-hmm. or in orbit or, or on any other celestial body. So your plan to put a laser beam on Europa, I'm afraid... <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna to have to rein that in. Is that is that any celestial body? Any at celestial all? body. So you can't. I mean, you know that uh, torpedo that you were gonna put on that comet. I'm afraid. <laughs> so you know, you're gonna to have to channel your money into it's a literally different thing. anything in the galaxy. This treaty outlines putting anything on okay. any uh, celestial body. This treaty also stops any country from taking any uh, territorial claim to the moon. Mm-hmm. So there's no sovereignty of it or any other planet. Mm. So you know your plan to. <laughs> fly to Io and put, <laughs> put down Anthony's flag. I feel you've planned these statements more than the fact itself. But it's all Anthony's plan to take over space. Because Io was first on my list. Well, it was the first moon that I thought of. Uh, Excuse yeah, me, so, t- Titan was more of my yeah, cup well, of tea. You know, you're going to have to rein all of these plans in, really. And also, I mean, by the terms of this treaty, you're going to have to stop carrying out military manoeuvres on the moon. <laughs> Sorry, you're gonna have to gonna have to rein these activities in. Oh, well, I'll just put my spaceship in the garage then. <laughs> um, yeah, other parts of this treaty say that any nation that's in space is, by international law, obliged to help any other astronaut of any other country hmm. if they're in distress. So there is a sort of serious side to this treaty as well. Hmm. But uh, the main body of this treaty is is there to say you cannot weaponize the moon. Right. My first reaction is to say this would be true. It sounds like a sort of 1960s Cold War sort of agreement. Mm-hmm. You can't weaponize anything out in outer space, but do what you want on Earth, basically. Yeah. But at the same time, who signed up to this? Uh, Soviets? It was drawn up US. by the Soviets and the Americans, kind of in the space race. So it was drawn up in 66 and we landed on the moon in 69. Nine. Well, not us. <laughs> I mean, I've never been. Well, that was a good. You. That was a fun weekend. Before <laughs> yeah. We landed on the moon. <laughs> you know, we're looking. We're looking good for seventy years old. 
Is this treaty still in place then? It is, yeah. Right. Uh, and is, or has every other nation signed up since then? Not every other nation. There are 108 countries that have now signed up to this. And there are a number that are have kind of shown interest in, but aren't sort of full parties to it. So it's not every country in the world, but yes, there's over so again, 100 countries. So again, the treaty is does exist. Still exists. It's just yeah. the clauses. Can you, you, you're not allowed to put any military object yeah. on anything in outer space. You basically. cannot c- take out military manoeuvres on the moon. I think that even if this is true, I think it's something that will be so widely ignored once we get into space <laughs> that it just makes it a pointless treaty. In the yeah, end. probably. But is it true? I'm thinking I might stick with my gut again and just have to say this is true. Okay. Is it? What are the clauses with it? Was it literally just those? No, you no, can't there, do there, there are lots of clauses in, in this treaty. Um, the question is whether... Uh, you're banned from putting space <laughs> weapons like like Moonraker. Yeah, I'm afraid it couldn't happen. You couldn't put some sort of. Oh, again, have you just thought of these have little, I these little jokes? <laughs> watched Moonraker and thought, oh, I don't think that should be legal. Yeah, no, the treaty does exist. The the question is whether it it specifically outlaws weaponizing the moon. Right. I'm going to say this. Those clothes. Ooh, I'm looking at your face there. I'm trying. I was. This, what? This never works. Never I try and read your face. <laughs> yeah, no. I always get it wrong. So in that case, I'm going to say this is BS. Right. Okay. I'm going against my gut. Okay. BS. I think you can motorize space. I think you can do whatever you want on the moon. Right. Okay. Right, final that's answer. Final answer. That's BS. Yep. That entire fact. It's true. <sighs> it is illegal to weaponize the moon by international law. <sighs> yeah, and this is the treaty that says that kind of space is sort of above sovereign level so that all space stations are international space stations. Any country can kind of use them. They're mm. common. They're kind of common to everyone. Any nation has to rescue any other nation's astronauts that are in, mm. in distress. Yeah, it's completely true. You cannot put a weapon of mass destruction really? on the moon. Interesting. Yeah. It's actually, there's an interesting fact to this that it was it was signed on the 27th of January 1967, mm-hmm. which was also the day that um, there was the very first ever fatality of an astronaut which was when Apollo 1 they had an oxygen fire and um, yeah all three of the the guys on board were killed so both of them happened on the same day Um, but yeah that's just a sort of side fact it's not it doesn't affect the treaty (laughs) Um, but yeah it's completely true you cannot weaponize the moon and this is a treaty that's been signed by 108 countries a lot of people had such high hopes in the 60s I know like if you watch any sci-fi from the 60s and 70s as well we're all living on magic colonies on the moon and (laughs) And everyone's getting along with each other. And, mm. and here we are, 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, one, no one's tried to weaponize the moon. Well, there you go. At least that's one treaty that's not been broken, at <laughs> yeah. least. Hey, well done, Paul. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's a 3-1. 3-1. You've know? got some work to do here, right. Tones. Looking like a poor victory, but I think I might struggle a draw on this last one. Well, well done, Paul. That's you, you. two points clear now. And so my next fact, um, it's kind of history, but it's more along the lines of spooky. Oh, right. Okay. Now, kind of long-term listeners might know, I like to, to pick up a few kind of, well, I don't want to say paranormal, but kind of obscure, mm. interesting, creepy, or spooky sort of facts. It's, it's like sort of unsolved mysteries and things. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. So I do, um, I quite like my unsolved mysteries. Yeah. Um, I also like my conspiracy theories. Not that I believe many of them, but I do, I do like to... I do like to sort of, this in, podcast has taken a new turn. Yeah, yeah. I'm instantly thinking who I can get to replace you on the next episode of that. 
<laughs> no, so but you're I sort of do... interested in them from afar. I am. Yeah. I like to read about these sort of things, the unusual, the unknown. Mm. And we've had a couple of facts in the past. We've had the Diablov Pass incident in Russia. Yeah, that was a weird that one. That was a weird one. Uh, we had one that I completely made up about a ghost ship yes. as well. Which was <laughs> still a sore point. <laughs> so we're taking another foray into the unknown today. Okay. And I want to ask you, Paul, have you ever heard of the Devil's Footprints? No, I don't think so. I know there's something like that in Germany. Yeah, well, that's okay because we're not in Germany. Right, okay. We are in South Devon for this fact. Oh, right, okay. Now, we're oh, going... Right. We're I, I'm completely like I thought I, might, I had you there because there's a thing in Germany of like there's a sort of footprint shaped mark in a in a cathedral, ah, uh, and think... it's, people say that it's the devil's footprint. Mm. It, this, right? Okay. No, I thought I might have had you there. Now no, you're, you've put is, me in Devon. Yeah, <laughs> that was just quick thinking. That right. actually was the fact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're going back to 1855 as well. Right. In Devon now. Basically, this happened on the night of the 8th of February in 1855. Right. Very heavy snow across most of the country that night. Right. And when the people of Devon woke up on the morning of the 9th, they noticed very unusual cloven hoof tracks. Mm-hmm. Apparently, these tracks travelled between somewhere between 40 and 100 miles. Right. So there were reports all along South Devon. It would. It appeared at first glance that these cloven hooves, it was just one, one line. Mm-hmm. So there was no footsteps. It was like the devil was hopping along on one foot. <laughs> maybe he was. <laughs> maybe, he's, maybe he'd hurt his other foot. Maybe it was a one-legged cow. Wow. Now there's a sight I'd like to see. Well, one, yeah. Yes, there was, there was a one-legged cow walking around. Yeah, him. really good core strength. <laughs> So the unusual thing about these footprints was that not only did they continue in one line, whenever they hit an obstacle like a building, mm-hmm. the footprints went up onto the roof and down the other side mm-hmm. and then boosh back into the straight line that they were carrying on with. Right. So obviously the local people of South Devon very spooked by this. Mm-hmm. And the main consensus was they look like cloven hooves. Right. Who has cloven hooves? It's the devil. Right. Okay. Who has cloven hooves. Okay. So there was a big hoo-ha around the Victorian times, like, oh, this is shocking, the, mm. the godless people of South Devon. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the title of your separate <laughs> podcast. We do love the people of South Devon. Yeah, a lovely part of the country. Exactly, a lovely part to visit. But then, of course, came the wild theories. What caused this if it wasn't the devil? Mm. Like, as any rational person might think. A hundred miles. Between 40 and 100, there's lots of conflicting reports. Right. From people. Good grief, okay. But unfortunately, there's no no one took any pictures of the time. Well, it was the 1800s. Uh, 1855. I think the camera was a, at least rudimentary cameras then. Oh, they were, yeah. I'd like to think they did. Yeah. Surely they did. Surely no one painted a portrait of it. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the wild theories around this. One person suggested that it might be an experimental balloon. That was released. <laughs> no, 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 now you wait. He's thought this through. Mm-hmm. That was released by mistake from Devonport Dockyard. Right. And it apparently had something trailing from the end of it. So it, like, it was like a balloon mooring rope. Oh, So right. as the balloon okay. was was flying along at night by mistake, because no one... It has come loose. It has come yeah. loose. And apparently this, the anchor was kind of bashing into the oh, ground right. okay. as it went along, which explains why bashed into the houses as well, yeah. making imprints as it went. There was also some evidence because conservatories and greenhouses had been destroyed in the path. 
So we uh, could think, oh, maybe it was smashing into these as it went along. Right, okay. Causing a wave of destruction. Mm. Or uh, maybe the devil just didn't know how much he weighed. <laughs> as he hopped onto the top of that greenhouse, <laughs> smashed straight through. He's like, oh, I've got to hit the gym. <laughs> So an, another favourite theory of mine was from the Reverend G.M. Musgrove, who mm-hmm. thought, is what he wrote, in the course of a few days, a report was circulated that a couple of kangaroos escaped from a private menagerie. Right. Well, Something tells me the Reverend <laughs> Musgrove has been at the communion wine. He's <laughs> been something stronger than the communion wine. And he believed that these kangaroos had escaped from somewhere in Sidmouth. Right. And, I thought you could say Sydney. It's more than 100 miles, Reverend. But again, the fact that no kangaroos were ever found and there was no one else reported that these kangaroos had gone missing. And the mm-hmm. fact that it was just single track, it uh, didn't seem to fly. And it would leave people. a mark with its tail as well, wouldn't it? Exactly. It, you'd imagine it would be a lot messier. Mm. From drawings, people... And look. Kangaroos aren't cloven hooves. <laughs> exactly. This Reverend needs, so... to, needs to rein it in. So again, this could be explained by the Victorians not quite understanding anatomy of different animals because he's probably never seen a real kangaroo (laughs) he's read about them but drawings from people made at the time like sketches they all drew like cloven hoof type footprints and one final theory was that people thought it was just badgers badgers? (laughs) again Again, you've got to give the Victorians a break they they don't have access to the same they can't just google stuff no, but they can look out the window and look at a badger if they're in the middle of nowhere in right, Devon. All right, I'll put this to you. How is a how... badger going to get on someone's roof? <laughs> a kangaroo um... passively can jump onto the roof of a, of a small <laughs> house. I don't think even passively a kangaroo couldn't jump well, onto a roof. Well, it's got more jumping ability than a badger. Maybe a the... badger. <laughs> Maybe it scaled up some vines or something. I don't know. Badger. Yeah. Right, okay. But I'll put this to you, Paul. How many mm-hmm. badgers have you seen just walking around? One. There you go, one in a lifetime. These poor Victorians. Yeah, because I don't live in the middle of rural Devon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm trying to defend... Yeah, fair enough. I've seen one badger in my entire life. No, I can't jump on the roof of a house. (laughs) (laughs) Who are these people? This has got you making it up written all over it. (laughs) No, why would... No, this is completely true. A badger jumped on the roof of a house. (laughs) I didn't say the badger did. These these locals did. All right, okay. So, to this day, it remains unsolved. Well, I can tell you it wasn't the badger. <laughs> <laughs> Will you leave the badgers right. and leave those poor Victorians alone? Okay. So, it was just kind of forgotten about. Uh, mm. People are kind of leaning towards it probably was this weather balloon, which would explain why it went for so long in right. a relatively straight line. But mm. most townsfolk, village folk, the village people, <laughs> the, the village people investigated... <laughs> What do they think it was? <laughs> well, young man, I'll tell you what I think. Uh, so most local people, being quite religious at the time, they just, yeah. they, and that's how the myth and the legend of the right. devil's footprints arose. Okay, that's interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm like you, I like stories like this. Mm. I've not heard of this one before. 40 to 100 miles of a sort of cloven-hoofed pattern. Yeah. Right, in like a straight line? They're as straight as you can get. Some of the sketches show it, show it veering about a bit, so it right. wasn't like perfectly straight. So the devil was having a little bit of a mooch he was, while he was, he was going. He was, he was hopping around, having a look. Ooh, a, what's... Up to people's windows and back. <laughs> Ooh, that greenhouse looks... <laughs> Stopped to have a look in the hat shop. <laughs> exactly. He's just enjoying himself. Posted these letters. 
But he's on holiday in South Devon. Who wouldn't want Wait, to have a it's a shame the weather didn't hold up for him, really. <laughs> Beautiful countryside, eh? regardless. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This sound this this is we keep coming back to the, like quintessentially quaint Victorian stories. <laughs> And I think just about all of them have been untrue. Mm. This does sound like the kind of thing that would cause a sort of furore in um, in rural Victorian England. Mm. The weather balloon is a nice, or the sort of barrage balloon thing is a mm. nice explanation, certainly. Uh, yeah, it sounds very plausible, but it's also got you <laughs> all over it. This thing about the badger and the kangaroo... <laughs> Like that's like you just come up with those in a sort of last ditch attempt to sort of. What about the Reverend G M Musgrave? That sounds like a name you made up as well, especially <laughs> making him a Reverend. That's like, right? I need some ludicrous character to have come up with. Some... How Victorian can I get? Yeah, this? exactly. Yeah, it's like you've invented some character that's going to come out with some insane theory. Mm. But then again, it just it does sound like one of those things that would have happened. Mm. Okay. Oh, this is hard. This is difficult because this has got you written all over it if you just had to come up with some funny story. (laughs) But I think it could also be true. And my gut is saying it it all happened overnight. Yes. Right. Okay. And they woke up the next morning and this was... So was it in like one location? Uh, Just kind of one line across South Devon. So So it it went through fields when, when it hit a village. Right. It went over the houses or right. smashed greenhouses if it hit them. Okay, so it's not like it, it happened in Tainmouth or something. It was no, a, it was like, always like, again, reports are all different, but it's always between 40 and 100 miles, people saying wow, these okay. footprints were. Right, okay. Ooh, I can see me getting this wrong, but I'm going to say that that is... Oh, we love our quirky Victorian stories. Mm. I'm going to say that's true. I think I might get that wrong, but I'm going to say that that's actually happened. Final answer? Yeah. This could be revenge for that Scottish man's museum. I know, that, that's, that's exactly what I've got <laughs> on my mind, is that I invented some Victorian character. The Reverend Musgrave. Uh, this story is true. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is a Victorian tale. Oh, brilliant. Of Footprints of the Devil. Wow. Get apologies to anyone in South Devon who knows more about this story, who might have got some of the details <laughs> wrong. But, yeah, they... I think actually the kangaroo one, the reverend said he actually made that up to distract his parishioners in the end. Now, oh. I've, I've gone back over my notes and he said, oh, it's probably just kangaroos, not the devil. Just kangaroos escaped. Don't worry about it. Oh, right. So, so he's sort of like trying to quell the, to soothe his the, parishioners. the moral panic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was a one-footed kangaroo <laughs> that leapt onto people's roofs. That didn't have a tail. <laughs> and smashed green And cloven hooves. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the badgers was another one. He... Badger, that's a ludicrous thing. Yeah, I don't know much about this guy. Someone called Richard Owen said it was probably badgers. It's about the size, but again, wouldn't explain Pro- why it, there was just it's, one. It's, it's like he turned over in a, in a pool of alcohol and just went, oh, it's probably badgers, and then fell back asleep again. Right, okay. I love the Victorians so much. <sighs> wow, that's a good story. Yeah. But Excellent. It, that unfortunately puts me 4-1 down. Oh. I can't win no. this episode. So it's all about pride. Okay. It is. Right. Right. On to the final facts. Hope it's about kangaroos. <laughs> okay. That was a good fact. I like that one. Yeah. But uh, last one in this episode. Right. Um, this is going to be about uh, the words that you shouted last time you came around my house. And I was fumbling with the keys behind oh, the door. And, and you shouted... 
I'm the Prime Minister, damn, you get this door open. You remember that happening? <laughs> oh, yeah, all, the, all the time. <laughs> okay, that story I've made up. But uh, that's the quote that this is, this is about. Um, this is a, about a 12-year-old old boy who once pretended to be the Prime Minister. I'm already enjoying this. Okay, uh, so some facts about 10 Downing Street to introduce this, because I know you've been. I have. Yeah. Do you know who the first PM was to use it? Oh, 1700s, wasn't it? It was, it yeah. Was, I'd be very impressed if you One get One of the pits. Oh, earlier than that. It was Robert Walpole. Ah, that's yeah, the um, 1732. It was given to him by George II as a sort of mm. gift. It wasn't much used at the mm. beginning. Yeah, and it was originally three houses that were knocked through to one, mm. which is why it's, it's so big. It's got over 100 rooms. It is. It's Once you go inside, you realize it's actually really massive inside. You get like there's a big stairwell with portraits of all the prime ministers on there mm. um loads of rooms going off to the side wow yeah i actually answered the door because the um the, the policeman had wandered off into like a side room and someone knocked on the door like this was open to tourists this day by the way the prime minister yes. wasn't there yeah, i wasn't should... i wasn't there as some sort of high level guest of the prime minister yeah we should have punctuated in this story by saying that you were I on do, a tour i don't work in the highest levels of government but oh he'd wandered off and there was a knock so i just opened it I was like, oh, come on in, come in. And who was it? Just another tourist. Oh, right, yeah. okay. So you weren't letting in like <laughs> no. the Prime Minister of Moldova or something. <laughs> no. I'm really sure that I would have known anyway. But yeah, as, much... if, as if someone knocked on the door and you just opened the door of 10 Downing Street. Well, that's... Is that not illegal? <laughs> it's like a huge security breach. <laughs> I had my bag checked on the way in. Well, you know, I hope people are listening. There's going to be... A... <laughs> <laughs> going to come and catch up with you. Yeah, you're going to be pulled before the beak. Because there's a little security booth just off to the right. Okay. Once you go in. I probably shouldn't be saying this, you know. Like, there's people... Well, no, you're, it's open to tourists. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. here's me. I'm getting paranoid now. Like, the, the podcast gets taken down <laughs> and I'm arrested. I knew I should have picked someone else as soon as you mentioned conspiracy theories. I'm starting to sweat there. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, so Back, back to the um, street facts. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it's three houses knocked into one, which is why it's so big. It was almost pulled down. It was used so little in, in the early sort of 1700s. It was also kind of pretty much destroyed during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and the door is is a steel door. It's very heavy. Oh, right. Okay. I was going to ask whether you knew experience, like, to pull that open. It's yeah. Quite, it's... Um, because there was an IRA bomb outside it in 1991. Did you really? know that? No, yeah. I didn't know that. And that's what destroyed an, uh, the wooden door. So it's been uh, a steel replica ever since. I thought I would have heard about that. I know, yeah. I was I was kind of intrigued about that when I was researching the door of 10 Downing <laughs> Street. Um, yeah, and because uh, I know that you'd been, I was wondering mm. whether you could kind of verify that or not. Yeah, black bricks. Mm. Very famously, they're black mm. because well now they're painted black, mm. but uh, they're actually originally yellow, um, really? and it was so polluted that they've turned black over time, and it became so characterful that they've been painted black. Eee, that's, that's a good. Fact. Yeah, that's, no, they like, didn't tell us that on the tour. I, said, I actually I should run the tours <laughs> <laughs> down the street. Um, I'm applying for my new job. Yeah. I'll be the new dorm, and you can do the tour <laughs> <laughs> with my brick fact. Yeah. So anyway, that, there's some facts about Ten Down the Street. And every Prime Minister pretty much since has used it at some point. Mm. Uh, but the Prime Minister that I'm going to talk about was Prime Minister from... I was going to tell you his name, but I'm going to quiz you on it. Because oh, I know you know your ba- history. I'm bad with Prime Ministers. Oh, well, it was the start of the First World War. It was 1908 to 1916. Ooh, Lloyd George. Ooh, it was Asquith. Oh, uh, was Lloyd George afterwards? I don't know. Before. I can't remember. Ah, see, I told yeah. you I'm bad with Prime Ministers. Um, so, yeah, H.H. H. Asquith. Herbert Henry Asquith. 
um, yeah, who's Prime Minister from 1908 to 1916. He was the last uh, leader of a majority liberal government. Bless them, they're, they're still trying. They just keep trying. <laughs> yeah, it was also his wife, who was a bit of a character, that um, repainted the famously black door green for yeah. a time. That's yeah, um, yeah apparently she was um, a bit, didn't like the door, so she painted it green. Uh, quickly painted back <laughs> and it's been black ever since um, but yes this is an event that happened during his sort of tenure of 10 Downing Street mm-hmm. in 1909 mm. okay when a boy called Noah Sinclair uh, mm-hmm. ran down 10 Downing Street braid on the door of 10 Downing Street <laughs> and screamed the words that you screamed at my house the other day no it didn't really I keep coming up with um, I'm the Prime Minister damn you now get this door open incidentally that's how I got into Downing Street <laughs> Funny story. (laughs) (laughs) And you were dressed as a 10-year-old boy at the time. So I'm Um, guessing they didn't have the big iron gates at the end of the street. Um, And if they did, he'd somehow go on to 10 down the streets and it ran down. Because once you're through those gates, the whole street's open, I think. It is. Um, There's like a security checkpoint at the gates uh, with a few few policemen there. They've got those machine guns, which is very intimidating. I don't think they had that in 1909. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, so he ran down the street, uh, ran up to the door, um, exclaimed this thing mm. and in the confusion the door was opened I, wait a minute in the <laughs> there's no way to be confused by this but it's the voice of a 12 year old boy it's obviously not the voice of Prime Minister Asquith <laughs> so your first thought is I'm not going to open this door yeah so the door was opened um, and of course the kid just ran in the house and promptly vanished because this place is so big um, there was a sort of security alert, or as big a security alert as you can get in 1909. Did they have any policemen there at all? Or any I sort think of this was more um, a case of sort of everyone who was there at the time was now tasked with finding <laughs> this boy that had vanished in the house. Uh, he was eventually found in a sort of side office room um, on the ground floor. He'd stolen a pen from one of the desks and had pocketed that. Um, of course, he was... He was <laughs> He's gone straight for the pen. <laughs> yeah, I want a pen. Um, he was apprehended um, and sort of dragged out the house and sort of given a stern talking to and taken to a local magistrate's court in, mm. in Westminster. Whereupon, it was found out that this kid, Noah Sinclair, was the son of John Sinclair, who was Prime Minister Asquith's secretary for Scotland. So it was his, it was his son, Baron Pentland, was uh, a member of um, Asquith's cabinet. Mm. And he was uh, a pupil at Westminster School, the boarding school nearby. Mm. He'd sort of bunked off school, ran off into London and was like, hey, my dad works there. <laughs> and so, um, Instead of saying, dad, let me in, he said, I'm the prime minister. Yeah. Well, it seems like he was a bit of a sort of character. Um, so as soon as they found out who he was, he was uh, taken back to Baron Pentland had, had an apartment mm. um, in Covent Garden. So he was taken back there where his, his mother, um, Lady Pentland, presumably, was in. Uh, Baron Pentland was away in Scotland. So she, yeah, he was taken back there. What happened to him after that, we don't know. He's probably given a, a damn good hiding <laughs> <laughs> by Lady Pentland. What did they do at the magistrate's court? Did he get... Oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing they took, took him there thinking that he was just some sort of... Local, local rapscallion <laughs> up to no good and that's when they found out he was the son of I can't believe there was so little security for the Prime Minister in 1909 yeah, yeah well like... the, well, possibly explaining this and Asquith sort of later had cause to raise this uh, was that someone's outside banging on the door saying I'm the Prime Minister at this point Asquith was actually away in Cheltenham oh nice <laughs> so that might be why there was less security there at the time <laughs> oh that could be guys. yeah that's true that's yeah so point. he raised this question of sort of saying this is the voice of a oh the, the kid had a Scottish accent as well oh nice which Asquith <laughs> didn't have um, so he sort of raised the question of kind of why did you open the door when it quite clearly wasn't the Prime because Minister 
at the time around then, like handguns were still perfectly legal in the UK. Yeah, they would have been, I would yeah, have thought, yeah. There was a time when, around that time, I think, the police were in a, a gunfight and they didn't have any guns, so they asked local citizens to borrow their guns. Wow. To have a gunfight with these criminals. It was somewhere in London, I'm pretty Good sure. Good grief. I'm like 90% sure that was a thing. That's a great fact, if that's true. So I'm going to look at more of that. Yeah. I'll give you some more of that next time. But like, I'm sure, because if the security is that lax, you could just walk up to the prime minister with a gun. Yeah. Like, theoretically, yeah. you could just knock, hello, I'm, I'm, the, prime <laughs> I'm the prime minister. Oh, morning, bang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, perhaps there was so little security because he was away at that point. This, um, yeah. this is another one that I want to be true. <laughs> I feel I've lost so badly already that if I say this is true in the belief that I want it to be true, it doesn't matter if I lose the point. <laughs> it's just pride. <laughs> it is. Again, it sounds like a thing that could have happened in 1909. Mm. Do you know when they put the big gates on the end of Downing Street? Oh, no, I don't know. They were there when I first went to London when I was 16, so they definitely had them by 1999. <laughs> what, what's that? There you go. <laughs> does that help? Oh, it certainly does. They were probably there maybe a little bit before then. Mm. Right. There's a lot of very specific facts in there. It has a Scottish accent. Son mm. of the Secretary... Secretary for Scotland, Scotland yeah. Which is, yeah, makes me a bit more... Yeah, well, of course he would have a Scotch accent. He's The Secretary for Scotland is probably going to be Scottish. Well, yeah, Baron Pentland, yeah. That is generally the case with governments they mm. appoint a scottish person as the minister right i'm just going to say because i want this to be true mm-hmm. i want to say yes that this is true a little boy ran up to Downing street <laughs> brayed on the door and yelled i'm the prime minister let me in <laughs> and then he somehow hid because <laughs> it is a big place you can't hide in there yeah i was surprised by how big it was when i was researching a hundred mm. rooms at least mm. yeah not that i was hiding in there or anything if well no you were if... too busy answering the door <laughs> Come in, come in. <laughs> right, final answer, true. Okay. That story mm-hmm. is BS. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <sighs> I'm so sorry. All the facts about Ted Downing Street is completely true. It was very rarely used. Um, yeah, b- yellow bricks, actually, that have been painted black. But no no 12-year-old boy ever pretended to be the Prime Minister. I should have stuck to my guns on the security issue because there's no way they just let that slide yeah those those gates were probably there (laughs) in 1909 even then people would want to try and kill the prime minister you'd imagine i would have thought so like you can't just have an open especially in the middle of world war one so it's like you would it would you could just put him in any house in the country then. You may as well just do that yeah i just knock on his door yeah sorry oh you're such a Words, words don't describe what you are. I'm so, I kind of was willing you to get the point there, but... Ah, 5-1. I'm sorry, 5-1? Not since the Christmas special have I been beating this band. I know. I'm, I'm, I kind of feel a little bit bad because you had some really good facts. <laughs> right, let's recap what we've learned. Today. Yeah, what were your facts? You, they were really good today. The, the Devil's Footprints thing is really Devil's interesting. Devil's Footprints one, uh, just because I like my mysteries. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. not enough mystery shows on TV, I don't think. I think we should. that's a new side podcast. We could have yes or BS with a question mark at the end of the way. We talk just about mysteries. Don't we already have a question mark? Oh, yeah, we do. I I don't even know our own logo. let's use the logo we've already got for a new podcast. Yeah, let's do that, Paul. Yeah, that might need a redesign. I don't know. We've learned that Paul doesn't know what the logo is. (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah, what was your other fact? Um, I had a big lie about Chinese credit cards. Yeah, but the facts about Chinese money is interesting. Yeah, they're paper money, all completely true. Yeah. 
My first fact was pigeons in tanks. Yeah, that that's fascinating. That pigeons in tanks sounds like it could be a new cartoon I might try and make. <laughs> Just. Right, right. You, you get onto that. <laughs> it moves swiftly on. What did we learn from you, Paul? Um, well, we learned that a twelve-year-old boy never pretended to be the prime minister. Um, but also, we learned that there's a treaty that stops you from weaponizing the moon. Mm-hmm. So again, you're going to have to rein these ambitions in of yours. <laughs> <laughs> that gigantic ray gun you're working well, on. How will I find the time for my space program when I'm the new doorman at Ten Downing Street, Paul? There's, I, <laughs> well, yeah, enough, true. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah, true. Uh, what was your first fact as well, Paul? Oh, yes. Um, Alexander Dumas had a uh, duel and his trousers fell down. And he still <laughs> managed to win the duel. I still think that's just your last weekend down the pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've gone back and written this into Dumas' life story so that it comes out as true. No, completely true. Yeah, um, yeah, you survived the duel even though his trousers fell down. Well, he may have survived the duel, but I didn't survive the podcast. What a segue that is, though. Ooh. You should get a bonus point for that. <laughs> As I was completely smashed into the ground. <laughs> and I just say thanks again for listening, everybody. And hopefully I can pull this back on the next episode. The last episode. The last episode of season two coming up next week. Mm. Looking forward to seeing you there. <laughs>